0: We are recording. Welcome to the workshop, <laughs> the <laughs> breakout session on grace for those with father issues. Glad you're here. Um, I'm glad you showed up. So as I said in the, uh, the little pitch thing, the little blog that uh, as soon as I sent, I said I, I didn't really write that well. But anyway, um, most people have father issues of some kind. Um, when you think of your father, it might be someone that you're really close to, maybe a hero. It might be someone that you wish you were close to. It might be someone that you were close with and not so much now. Um, some people have never met their father. They're not sure if they want to or not. Uh, other people, um, their father is the best man at their wedding. Like, they're really, really tight. Uh, I've done a lot of premarital counseling, and one of the things I always ask couples is, you know, describe your family of origin. What was the overall mood of your house growing up? What, were your, what was your parents' marriage like? What's your relationship with your parents like? Because we subconsciously internalize all that stuff, and we take that right into our marriage. And then if we have kids, we take that right into being a parent. And uh, I've got six kids, two boys, and four girls. I've got an older son, and then my wife and I have four girls and a boy. And as they hit different ages, I would have these flashbacks, good or bad, of my own life at that age. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It's very It can be really cool, and it can also be really like, whoa. Um, And what I've learned over the years uh, in pastoral ministry and just in my own life is that most people have some pretty deep issues here. Uh, It gets pretty tender pretty quick. We don't have, you don't have to dig very very far below the surface to start hitting some nerves. So what I'm going to do today is share lots of stories and illustrations, just a bunch. And I'm going to have a little bit of theology at the end. And then, like I said, um, we'll do Q&A because I might not say anything that relates to you at all. <laughs> you, can, you can ask a question that, well, none of this connects with me, but here's what, well, let's talk about this. And we'll have a little time for that, and then um, uh, we'll kind of wrap up the session, then any of y'all that would like to stick around. I've got my anointing oil. We're we'll, we going to do a real brief healing prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. All right, so that's, that's how we're going to do this. So down in Valdosta, uh, anybody who's in, been in parish ministry, I use four words to describe people in the church uh, all over the map. <laughs> so, uh, and that's just life. It's actually everybody, isn't it? It's certainly me. And we had uh, this one uh, young guy uh, that comes sporadically, and uh, he's your prototypical angry young man. He's uh, about 30-ish and a single guy, and he would also always sit uh, during our 8 o'clock service, right in line with the pulpit and act bored and looking through the bulletin to read the same announcements 18 times in a row over the course of the sermon, so this kind of thing. Well, um, he told me one day that he wanted to talk with me, that he had all these theological questions he wanted to, to discuss, and I was like, sounds fun, sure, we can do that. So he sent me this email, like, I want to have you have time prepare to prepare for our meeting, so here's all the questions. So I'm like, what the heck, man? So he sends me this email... And I'm like, I'm like thinking, I'm not going to even read this. So we meet on a Saturday because he couldn't meet during the week because his job was so important. And so we, we, we sat down. And he starts with these questions. And I said, um, can I ask you something? And he said, sure. I said, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I don't think you care about any of these questions at all. I said, I think you're, you're, you come across as really angry, like big time. Now, if I'm totally wrong, I apologize, but... Is there something up there? He's like, well, you're very, you're very perceptive. Mm-hmm. I'm very angry. He's like, who are you angry at? I'm angry at God. I'm angry at my Father. All right. Well, we can talk about these questions, but I have a feeling you don't care that much about this stuff. So why don't we talk about the stuff that you actually care about? Mm-hmm. And so we did. And it turns out that he was angry at God because he was gay and he didn't understand how that lined up with Scripture. He was angry at his dad because his dad, when he found out, built a shed for him in the backyard. <sighs> Can you imagine? And so he moved to the shed. It was a nice shed. He put in an AC. But um, So that's, that kind of stuff's not uncommon, like below the surface and at the root of anger is often deep woundedness. Um, some people are just mad because they're mad, but oftentimes there's deep woundedness. That's at the source of it. Um, so, I keep running into this stuff in parish ministry, and there 's this thing called transference that happens a lot, where people that have this attitude towards someone will place it on you, especially if you 're a pastor. So people that have anger issues with their dad will often take that out on me, even you know, which is why i don't please don 't call me father, you can if you want, but i 'm not your dad, so i didn 't do all that stuff.. <laughs> all right. Or sometimes there'll be older ladies in the parish that um, treat me like the son they wish their son was. or Like, it can be good or bad, right? Um, there's this amazing YouTube talk that Paul Zoll does, a radio interview, about all about transference, and you could look that up. I highly recommend it. So this, this transference thing happens in the church all the time and just in life all the time. Uh, if you have deep father issues, sometimes you'll always be looking to an older male to sort of fulfill that father role, and it's often done unconsciously. You're kind of the needy young guy that needs a good father figure, and it can be exhausting. And so it's all these weird dynamics that happen. They're at play all the time, and a lot of times we're unaware of it. Um, But just because we're unaware of it doesn't mean it's not very real. Um, I was at a clergy training event uh, a couple years ago that was completely irrelevant. (laughs) <laughs> to actual parish ministry. But I was uh, at dinner one evening. That sounds really pretentious, doesn't it? I was at dinner one evening uh, with one of the other clergy that was there. We actually had a conversation that was relevant. He's much older than me. And uh, uh, we were talking about being dads and, and raising PKs. Being a preacher's kid is very hard. So we were just kind of talking about that. And uh, he said, you know, one of the best things I ever did with my adult kids, I said, what's that? He goes, I took them to dinner without their spouses. I said, I just want one dinner with just y'all. So we went to dinner, and we sat down, and we did the small talk. And then he said, I got to look them in the eye and say, you know what? I did the best I could as your dad, but I really messed up sometimes, and I really dropped the ball sometimes, and I love you so much, and I'm sorry. And I want to have a good relationship with y'all. And he said... I didn't realize that there was this stuff, but there was, and it kind of all went down like the wall of Jericho, and he said, ever since then, it's just been more fun at Thanksgiving and stuff. And I thought, what a, what a great, that's actually relevant. <laughs> I was at this training event. I was like, none of this stuff matters. This is all law BS that we're supposed to place on the parish. It has no, no connection with the actual, your heart. Anyway, so um, some so people were laughing, like, I know what that's about. Um <laughs> And so, but I thought, man, that's so great. Um, Father issues are at the heart of so many things in literature and movies. Even even your offbeat comedies, Zoolander, um, Billy Madison, uh, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, all these crazy movies, which are hilarious. And I love those movies. I have a 13-year-old's maturity with a sense of humor, and it's never (laughs) changed. But they're all replete with father issues. Like they, they all have this little subtext over here with this stuff, these recurring themes. Um, sometimes I think about what kind of dad do I want to be like, thinking about TV shows or movies. And I always thought if I could be a combination of Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird and Coach Eric Taylor from Friday Night Lights, <laughs> I'd be the ultimate dad, you know? Uh, so that kind of is what I kind of shot for. Uh, if you see the show Parenthood, Um, which is a great show, ended a few years ago. Peter Krause is a dad. Craig T. Nelson is a grandfather. You see just images of grace from those guys. It just keeps going. Um, Father of the Bride, the movie with Steve Martin that came out when most of y'all were pretty little. Um, But I've got a daughter who's engaged now, so that movie's kind of back on my radar. But uh, watching the way he cares for his daughter and her fiance is just lots of grace there. The reality is having a lack of a loving connection with your father uh, is deeply wounding, and it 's a pervasive wound so uh, give you a metaphor um, my paternal or, sorry my maternal grandfather, my mom 's dad, was in World War II, Battle of the Bulge was a, a medic he was driving a jeep one day they hit a landmine, killed the guy he was with, and it filled his leg with shrapnel and It was so deep and pervasive of a wound that you couldn't just go take care of it. So literally 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, 40 years later, little pieces of shrapnel would surface on his leg. And he'd have to go to the doctor and have that one taken out. And I think when we talk about some of these things, the wounding is so deep and pervasive that you're not going to come to something like this and just have it taken care of. And as you live your life, for some of you all, these father issues are kind of front and center, like they're kind of a big part of the movie screen right now. And for others of you, it's sort of episodic, like you'll go several months and then you'll be driving or something out of left field will trigger something and it's right there again. And so what I'm wanting to do today is sort of give you some things to think about so when that happens, you can kind of look at that thing, that hurt, that wound uh, through the lens of God's grace. Okay, so I'm going to um, share some pretty dark illustrations uh, about kind of wounding father issues. Who said you're? They're from Seattle. Yes. So I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. All right, and um, can we get? Um, we have a seat. Why don't you come sit right up here? We got another seat. Excellent, right there in the front row. So I'm um, a big Pearl Jam fan, and um, my friends in Charlottesville know that I'm kind of a rock and roll nerd, so every time Rolling Stone comes out with another collector's edition, I'm all excited. And, uh, so the one on Pearl Jam that they did last year uh, has this interesting uh, interview with Eddie Vedder, uh, the lead singer of Pearl Jam, um, and I share his background a little bit. So uh, here is from this collector's edition, ro- <laughs> Rolling Stone collector's edition. Uh, When Eddie Vedder was 17 years old, his mother told him that Peter Mueller, the man he knew as his father, a man he hated, was not his father at all. His real dad was his mother's first husband, Ed Severson, a sometime lounge musician who had died several years before. Eddie grew up knowing him only as a family friend. So he finds this out as a teenager after his, his biological dad had died. What is he supposed to do with that? So on their 1991 debut album, 10, which was just iconic, um, he has this song called Release Me. That's this, he's calling out to his father. So this is some of the lyrics. Dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you somehow. I'll ride the wave where it takes me. I'll hold the pain, release me. Dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you somehow. I'll wait up in the dark for you to speak to me. I'll open up. Release me, release me, release me, release me. It's this kind of droning jam. And it's very, very powerful. And trust me, Eddie Vedder is not the only one who's waited in the dark to talk to their father alive or dead. Some some of us have had imaginary conversations with our dad are conversations we wish that we could. Or you're driving by yourself and you're talking to your dad who's not there. If you ever see the movie Elizabethtown, Orlando Bloom at the end, he's got the urn of his father's ashes in the front seat, and he's driving across country and he's like pouring his heart out to this urn of ashes. That's his dad. It's a very powerful sequence. So the article continues, as a kid, Eddie Vedder used to cope with his pain over the relationship with his father by going to the park Uh, with his guitar and singing Independence Day by Bruce Springsteen. And years later, veteran Springsteen uh, were in town together. They were somewhere here in Manhattan. They were drinking tequila on a rooftop, and they were having this like level five conversation about their relations with their father. And Eddie got to tell uh, Springsteen how he used to play Independence Day by himself, and it kind of helped him cope with this. And he said in the interview, quote, You helped me as a voice coming from a piece of vinyl when I was a boy, and now you've helped me put it away by being a human being right in front of me. Isn't that powerful? And if you watch HBO documentaries on Bruce Springsteen, which I do, so they did one in 2015 called The Ties That Bind, which is all about the River album, which came out in 1980. And Springsteen did a River album tour a couple years ago, and I went to, my wife and I went to the one in Atlanta at Phillips Arena, and they played the whole album all the way through. Then he did 13 encore songs. It was just, I was having moments like every three minutes. It was incredible. (laughs) It was so good. But they sang Independence Day. And Here are some of the lyrics from this song that really connected with Eddie Vedder. Uh, What it is, it's it's a dialogue of a a son late at night in the kitchen with his his estranged father talking to him the night before he leaves home. Papa go to bed now, it's getting late. Nothing we can say is going to change anything now. I'll be leaving in the morning from St. Mary's Gate. We wouldn't change this thing even if we could somehow because the darkness of this house has got the best of us and there's a darkness in this town that's got us too. But they can't touch me now and you can't touch me now. They ain't going to do to me what I watch them do to you. So say goodbye. It's Independence Day. And if you read Springsteen's autobiography, Born to Run, which I highly recommend, it's, it's really, really good. But that is the recurring theme of the book, is his relationship with his father. I mean, just over and over and over again. He keeps looping back to that all the way through. And uh, one of the reasons that Springsteen's music is connected with so many people is because that theme resonates. It actually hits home. So that's not depressing enough. So I'm going to have a few more dark illustrations, and then we'll we'll kind of bring in some good news. So we're going to kind of walk down into the pit, wallow for just a little bit, and then we'll, we'll come back up, all right? So one of the things I love about living in the Deep South is when I have time off, since I live in the rectory, my wife's like, Dave, you have to, like, leave. I love you, but if you stay here to have rest, you will not rest. So you have to, like... Go, God bless you, and leave. So I do these road trips in the deep south uh, in my old pickup truck, and it's awesome. And so I like to go to literary places like William Faulkner's home, Rowan Oak in Oxford. And I was on my way there, and I, I drove through Columbus, Mississippi, and went to the Tennessee Williams childhood home. And um, they have this display upstairs and where they have pictures from Tennessee Williams' life, the playwright, and uh, it, there's this quote. When you start this display, this is what it says. Tennessee Williams would spend his entire life regretting the lack of his father's love. Oh, okay. So maybe that's another reason why his plays connect. All right. Um, any of you watch The Crown, that Netflix series? It's whew, so good. Well, they had the, the penultimate um, episode from season two, which was just heartbreaking. Paterfili- familias*. Uh, it's about Prince Philip having a flashback to his childhood. I don't know if any of you saw this episode. It's really, really dark. Well, um, what happens is Prince Philip, uh, as a boy, uh, is going, he sends his son, Charles, uh, to the same boarding school he had gone to as a boy. And so he's having all these flashbacks about his relationship with his father. When Philip was 16, his misbehavior at school led his favorite sister, Cecile, who was pregnant, to change flight plans. And in a tragic, true-to-life nightmare, she not only delivered a baby during the flight, but the plane crashed and all were lost. And this actually happened. So Philip goes to Germany for the funeral. And he's wearing a black suit and he walks through Snow flurries behind the caisson bearing the casket of his beloved sister. It's 1937, and so the Third Reich is peaking. And so as he walks down the street, there's all the swastika banners hanging from the buildings. And camera bulbs are flashing, and German shepherds are barking, and Philip's surrounded by Nazi soldiers, but he's walking isolated by himself behind the casket. So the next scene is at the crowded funeral reception. And Philip approaches his family, and his sister says to their mom, who was uh, mentally disabled, so she was not there. Mama, it's Philip, your son. And she just looks puzzled. Then Philip's father has something to say. I'm surprised he dare show himself. Had it not been for Philip and his indiscipline, she would never have taken that flight. He's got this monocle on, which makes him look really evil. <laughs> and uh, he says this. It's true, isn't it, boy? You're the reason we're all here, burying my favorite child. And Philip is silent, and his father turns away and says in disgust, Get him out of here. It's just brutal scene. So there's another dark one. I've got more dark ones for you. Uh, I don't know if any of you watched 3030, the ESPN series. Uh, 30, for, for, uh, 30 for 30, it's uh, these little mini documentaries about athletes and stuff. They did one on Brian Bosworth. I don't know if any, any of y'all saw this came out a few years ago. Famous linebacker uh, from Oklahoma. And then he got drafted and played for Seattle Seahawks for a little bit, got run over by Bo Jackson in the famous Monday night play. But anyway, just phenomenal uh, linebacker. Uh, and he says this, it's, it's all about his broken relationship with his dad. That's what the whole documentary is about. And he says this, when I was in high school, I had some serious doubt issues as to my ability as a football player, and I played scared. And then it, tell, it shows you why he played scared, because of his father. And so there's a scene where they're going through all these boxes of old memorabilia from his childhood. And Brian Bosworth, who's like in his 50s, has got a son, and they're looking through all these old scrapbooks and photos of him playing ball as a kid and all this. And uh, says this, uh, every tackle, every carry, every touchdown, every fumble, every mistake, all of it, Brian's father recorded in these journals. And Brian says this When it came to sports, it was never good enough. I didn't play well enough. There was always something wrong with something I did, and I know what dad was doing. He was trying to push me to a place where he wanted me to go. And Brian's sister put it this way. He'd get done with a practice or get done with the game, and there was just a harpooning at the end as to everything he could have or should have done better or differently. His dad was throwing the harpoon. His dad was Captain Ahab. All right. Rick Riley, the Sports Illustrated uh, columnist, added this. He said, uh, was that a good action shot? Uh, sorry, I- I'm being rude. I'm not trying to be rude. Uh, Rick Riley says this, whatever Brian did, his dad wanted more. He could never get a big hug, great game. Rather, it was, how'd you miss him on that sweep? How'd you get fooled on that bootleg? His dad would make him run laps after practice. Brian was a kid who was not sure what was driving him. What was driving him was much darker than I think he wanted to let on. Can we ask the piano player to call it? Um I mean it 's really good music and everything, but so what 's driving you? because a lot of times people, especially hyper driven people, are trying to prove something to their father or spite their father but either way there 's this connection a lot of times, okay, so Brian Bosworth was playing scared, and toward the end of the documentary he 's looking through that uh bin of, of uh, scrapbooks and clippings and stuff. And this is what he says to his son. There's more to life than paper clippings and accolades and trophies. Let's put this stuff away. Very powerful. And you see Eddie Vedder and Bruce Springsteen, Tennessee Williams, Prince Philip, Brian Bosworth, uh, they, they all have that same connection. Let's have a, a, a female example. I'm sorry, it's so male heavy. Um, Uh, Forrest Gump, Jenny. Everybody's seen Forrest Gump, I hope. If you haven't, you need to watch it. It's a gospel-soaked film. Um, And Jenny, of course, had the uh, sexually abusive father. There's a scene early in the film where the drunk dad stumbles out of their shoddy house, and she's a little girl, and she's trying to hide in the cornfields. and Jenny! Jenny! And she's like... Praying to God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away. You remember that scene. And late in the film, Forrest and Jenny um, circle back as adults to the ruins of her childhood home. And she walks up, and she's picking up rocks, and she's throwing them at the house. How could you? How could you? And she collapses, just crying on the ground. And Forrest Gump sits down next to her, and in the uh, voiceover, he says, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. It's an incredible scene. So all those dark images, and what happens is this can leave a really um, lasting imprint on your life. It can have ripple effects on your marriage and on how you treat your own kids, how you see yourself, how you treat people in the church or outside of the church. And so it's important to look at this stuff through the lens of God's grace. Uh, John Steinbeck in East of Eden uh, this is a recurring theme, too. It's, it's uh, Cain and Abel with Adam, but told in 20th century Salinas, California. It's an incredible book. Listen to what John Steinbeck uh, says. The greatest terror a child can have is that he or she is not loved, and rejection is the hell they fear. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection, and with rejection comes anger, And with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection. And with the crime, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. John, lighten up. (laughs) But it's true. It's true. And any kind of uh, wounding things from your father or rejection from your father, um, it's awful. And it can leave long-term effects that are not good. And sometimes the anger that you feel about this thing, you're taking it out on other people without even realizing it. So you might be yelling at your wife because of something you're mad at your father about or yelling at your husband because of something you're mad at your father about. And they didn't do anything. And this is all theoretical. None of you have ever experienced this, right? And this happens in the church too. A lot of times angry parishioners take out their father issues on me or you're like a lightning rod. Um, So... Now we're going to start climbing out of the pit, all right? Is that enough dark stuff? <laughs> let's, let's get to some good news here. So here's the good news. Um, regardless of how much rejection or wounding you've received from your earthly father, who may in turn have received it himself, there's always a backstory. Always a backstory. It's hard to give what you never received, right? So oftentimes that's part of it too. But regardless of all that mess and all that emotional slop and wounding, the good news of God's grace is that your heavenly father has never rejected you and never will that you're accepted. We have this post communion prayer in the Episcopal church, eternal God, heavenly father, you have graciously accepted us. And there's God's grace, gracious acceptance that heavenly father love for you. Um, Tom Petty. I'm a huge Tom Petty fan. And last year, I'm so glad I did this. He, He was on this 40th anniversary tour uh, with the Heartbreakers, which ended up being the last tour he did. And they came to Atlanta. And my daughter, Emily, who's as big of a fan as I am, Dad, Tom Petty's coming to Atlanta. we got to go, Dad. And uh, Emily has me wrapped around her finger. So (laughs) it's like her mom. So basically like, okay. So I pulled up. And I'm like, ugh. So I bought some tickets for Petty. And me and Emily and a couple of other kids went up. And uh, it was just an incredible concert. And when they played Wildflowers, Emily started crying, Dad, it's my song. It's like, I know, it is you. And we just had this moment, and it was incredible. Well, Tom Petty, if you watch uh, Running Down a Dream, that brilliant documentary, four hours long, about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, his relationship with his dad was awful. His dad was abusive, physically abusive uh, to him. Uh, Favored his brother over him. His brother, who was the athlete, and Tom was the artsy kid. And so... Some deep stuff there. Well, the last song on his album, Wildflowers, from 1994, uh, is a song that shows both the dark and then the hope. You spend your life dreaming, running around in a trance. You hang out forever and still miss the dance. And if you get lucky, you might find someone to help you get over the pain that will come. You were so cool back in high school. What happened? You were so sure not to have your spirits dampened but you're just a poor boy alone in this world. You're just a poor boy alone in this world. And here's the hope. And it's wake-up time. Time to open your eyes and rise and shine. It's an incredible song. Now I'm going to show some uh, illustrations, some positive fatherhood illustrations, okay? So we're going to leave kind of the junk behind and come to a happier place (laughs) for a little bit. Uh, movie Braveheart, um, which after uh, um, Mel Gibson's anti-Semitic rant, a lot of people kind of wrote him off. Um, and I did, too. Um, I was that hypocritical as well. Um, but I recently kind of looped back to Braveheart, which was one of my favorite movies as a young man and as a middle-aged guy. Different parts of the film connect with me in different ways now. So it's not so much Braveheart's uncompromising courage. It's Robert the Bruce's betrayal. And it's this episode that happens with Hamish and his father, Campbell, who's dying after battle. Some of you might remember the scene. And his, his dad's dying. His son wants to help. And his dad says, let it be. No, his son replies, you're going to live. And his father says, I've lived long enough to live free. Proud to see you become the man you are. I'm a happy man. And those were his last words. So that that positive image and that ripple effect. Uh, the ESPY Awards in 2013, uh, Team Hoyt was given the uh, Jimmy Valvano uh, Courage Award. Tim, Team Hoyt, I'm probably familiar with this father's son. Uh, they do marathons and iron, triathlons and all this stuff. And the son's a paraplegic. Born in the late 60s. And what happened was... Um, uh, The doctors really told the parents, you really need to put him in a home. There's no way you can care for this guy. But his parents wouldn't do it. And so they raised uh, their beloved son, uh, the paraplegic uh, kid. And um, several years ago, a church person sent me an email like, you got to watch this video. And I hate getting those emails. I hate... I hate the forward emails. Like, this is so cute. This is so funny. Look what this church is doing. They're really relevant and connecting. Like, I hate those emails. Oh, my gosh. And usually I go right-click, delete. But this time I was like, okay. So I clicked on it, and about three minutes later, I'm just a train wreck in my office. So what this video is, and maybe some of you have seen it, it's, it's the father um, who Ricky is the is the boy, the father uh, takes his son on an Ironman triathlon. And so the first part, he's got little Ricky in the raft and he's swimming. He's swimming the 2.4 mile swim, towing his son behind him. The next clip is the 112 mile bike race that he has a specially designed stroller on the back of his bike. He brings Ricky through all of it. And then the last part, is um, the marathon because the first two things weren't enough. So the 26.2-mile marathon, and he's pushing Ricky in this stroller the whole way. And at the end, uh, they cross the finish line, and there's just crowds of people, and they're spraying water and laughing and crying and hugging. And and there's this tender moment where the dad, who's literally taking his kid through the whole Ironman triathlon, is just gently wiping his face and just beaming at his son. And it just crushes you unless you have no soul which means you need to go to a different breakout session <laughs> uh, another one uh, from Brendan Manning I don't know if any of you have read Brendan Manning if you haven't um, highly recommend it. his last work was last book was called All is Grace um, where he says you know grace is not cheap it's free so sorry Dietrich Bonhoeffer um I was really into him when I was in college and as a middle-aged guy. I'm like, I respect you, but I completely disagree with you. Brendan Brendan Manning, uh, I'll never be on his plane, but I just don't agree with it. Uh, Brendan Manning has this book called All Is Grace, and all of his books just are drenched with this this grace that we talk about at Mockingbird. And in his 2009 book, The Furious Longing of God, he tells this uh, anecdote of a father and son. I just want to read this little portion with you. So what's happening is the, the son's back from college. He's, his dad's taken him to the bus station to, to take the bus back to school. So Manning writes this. The father and son ride the bus in silence. They get off the bus as Larry has to catch a second bus to get to the airport. Directly across the street are six men standing under an awning, all men who work the same textile factory as Larry's father. They begin making loud and degrading remarks about Larry's son, Look at that fat pig. I tell you, if that pig was my kid, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, I wouldn't. If that slob was my kid, he'd be out the door so fast he wouldn't know know he was on foot or horseback. Hey, pig, give us your best oink. These brutal salvos continued. But Larry's father reached out and embraced his son, kissed him, and said this. Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift he gave us in you. I'm so proud that you're my son. And Larry Mullaney eventually became a missionary in South America because as Brendan Manning writes, his father had the guts to get out of the foxhole and choose the high road of blessing in the face of cursing and taunts. His father looked deeply into his son's eyes, saw the good in Larry Mullaney that Larry couldn't see for himself, affirmed him with love, and changed the whole direction of his son's life. Uh, got another one for you. This is a personal story. So I was at one of my kids' middle school graduations, which are so, they're so painful. <laughs> oh my gosh, middle school graduations are the worst. I mean, eighth graders, just being in a room of eighth graders is hard enough, but you throw in graduation, and then you throw in all the awards. They have awards for everything, including the Perfect Attendance Award, which I hate because it's always from this kid that made all the other kids sick because their, parent, right? their parents made them go to school and share their sickness with everybody. But hey, they got the Perfect Award certificate, so good for them. Anyway, so we're going through this, all these awful awards. It just goes on and on. And then the ego filled speeches by the really smart, beautiful kids. And you go through the whole thing. Finally, they're going to give out the little certificates of graduation. And they would walk, they lined up, walked up the stage, walked across, got their certificate, the braces filled smile. They go down, they go back to their seat. Well, one of the kids is uh, in a wheelchair. So his dad pushes him up to the edge of the stage and and there's this awkward moment because the, the stairwell is too narrow for the wheelchair. So it kind of breaks that graduation flow with the names. It just stops. And he stands there for a second, the dad, and then he just scoops his son up and carries him up the stage. I, it's just like, whew, carries him across and they hand the son their certificate. He had gotten any awards. He had challenges that nobody in that room could understand. But he flashed that same gracious filled smile to everybody. And then his dad carried him back. Everybody's clapping. And, and that, that was the moment that I'll remember from that graduation. Another image of just that grace, uh, gracious fatherhood. Another illustration. This is from Amy Poehler's book, uh, Yes, Please. Have any of y'all read Yes, Please? If you haven't, I highly recommend it. Uh, One of my daughters told me last year when I was hanging out with her, Dad, you need to read more books written by women, Dad. You need to expand your perspective a little bit. And she was right. So I was like, well, I like Amy Poehler. She's hilarious and she's really smart. So I, I read Yes, Please. Listen to what she writes about her dad. This was very interesting to me. This is from Amy Poehler. William Grinstead Poehler was born September 21, 1946 in Waynesboro, Virginia, His mother, Anna, was first married to William, his father, who left right after he was born. For the first five years of his life, my father lived in a foster home. Anna remarried, and her new husband, Carl, adopted my father. The first day my father met my mother, he came home and told my grandmother, I've met the girl I'm going to marry. He was an elementary school teacher and a financial planner. For my wedding, my father, his friends, and my uncles performed a surprise tap dance number. (laughs) with top hats and canes. He is generous, nosy, and good at arm wrestling. And then she lists some things that she learned from her dad. And here are a few of those things. Eat whatever you want. (laughs) Girls can do anything boys can do. Your mother is smarter than I, and I'm fine with that. You don't want to be the creepy dad. (laughs) We all know creepy dads, and that's sad. That's so sad. Creepy dads in the church, it's the worst. Uh, It's okay to cry. It's okay to argue. And finally, tell everyone you meet what your daughter does until your daughter begs you to stop. (laughs) So another positive illustration. Um, I'll share one more. Uh, This was from Charlottesville. And um, there was a a gentleman there who uh, died of a progressive disease. It was just really long, prolonged. And his son was a lacrosse phenom, a scoring machine on the lacrosse field. Went on to play D one lacrosse. And um, late in his dad in the dad's disease, he couldn't speak anymore. And so he would sit in the wheelchair on the edge of the field. But at the end of every game, the son would walk up, and his dad would hold up the number of fingers for how many goals he scored. Not awesome. So. He was given the love to his son that he could still give. So again, all those uh, examples of what, what positive, gracious acceptance and fatherly love can look like. And the fruit that that bears is just amazing. It, it's actually more than the damage, the, the dark fruit uh, that the wounding bears. The gracious fruit is, is better and is more. And scripture uh, does not turn a blind eye Uh, to the idea of uh, father-son issues, does it? When you go to Cain and Abel, you go to Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael, and those fun dynamics, and then Isaac with Jacob and Esau and the birthright, and who's going to get the blessing, and then Jacob, and he likes Joseph better than everybody else, and everybody knows it, and so they have him you know, sold to be a slave, and they don't say anything for 20 years. They sit on that, watching their father grieve, no dysfunction in that family. And you go, you go down to King David, who you might remember was the youngest of uh, Jesse's eight, eight sons, was the only one who was not invited to the gathering with the prophet Samuel. And remember, God had told Samuel um, the next king of Israel is going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so Jesse presents to Samuel one at a time, all seven of David's brothers, oldest to youngest. The youngest probably thinks, it's got to be me. I'm going to be the king. And Samuel says, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you have any other sons? Listen to what Jesse says. Well, I have the youngest. He's out with the sheep. He wouldn't even say his name. And Samuel says, go get him. We're not sitting down until he arrives. So they all stand there awkwardly for a while. And this beautiful image when David, he doesn't know any of this stuff is happening. He's just used to being the projected kid out with the sheep walks in and in the midst of his brothers, David is anointed the next king by Samuel. So Psalm 23, you've anointed me in the presence of those who trouble me. David experienced that. And here's the anointing from your heavenly father for you. Here's here's the good news of God's grace when it comes to, to your father issues, all right? Scripture says this in the Psalms, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will sustain me. Romans and Galatians, uh, Paul writes about the primary work of the Holy Spirit being to to tell your heart, to assure your heart that you are one of God's children. Uh, Paul puts it this way, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So Pentecost was mentioned in that brilliant talk this morning. Um, and one of the things that happens at Pentecost is a lot of times we'll get preoccupied with fire and speaking in tongues and gifts of the Spirit, and that's all great. But the primary work of the Holy Spirit is, is that, is to, to assure you in your heart that no matter what's happened with you and your earthly father, you are a beloved, accepted child of the living God. Totally loved, totally known, totally forgiven. Uh, that is Sarah brilliantly Uh, and bluntly put it, you know, God loves the hell out of you. 1 John 3 says this, See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And when you look at Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, uh, you'll remember that He began uh, with being baptized, and, and God the Father proclaiming, You are my Son, the Beloved, with You I am well pleased. Before He did a single miracle, or raised Lazarus, or preached the Sermon on the Mount before any of it. There was that total acceptance and blessing, and Jesus operated out of that. And Jesus t- told a parable about what our Heavenly Father is like, called the parable of the prodigal son, which when the son gets back, as you, famous, as you remember, he has this rehearsed speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And he says the speech to his dad, who's been looking longingly for his son to come home for. A long time and his dad doesn't even acknowledge the speech he just starts giving directions to throw the party to end all parties that's that's what your Heavenly Father's love for you is like I'm a big uh, Star Wars fan and and I'm a big Shakespeare fan I'm just a total nerd and my kids make fun of me for it and I'm at a point in my life where I just don't care I'm like okay well I'm gonna go watch Star Wars and read Shakespeare so have fun Um, and uh, there's actually William Shakespeare's Star Wars. Have any of you seen these books? Ian Doscher, who went to um, Yale Divinity School, and then he decided to write William Shakespeare's Star Wars books. And what he's done <laughs> is uh, they're amazing. All right, so each Star Wars movie he writes as a five-act play in iambic pentameter like a Shakespeare play, and it's just incredible. Well, the Star Wars movies are replete with this issue, aren't they? So Empire Strikes Back, you know, Luke, I'm your father, Darth Vader, uh, and then in the, um, the, the seventh episode, um, The Force Awakens, that awful scene where Kylo Ren kills Han Solo, his father, which is just brutal. Um, so I'm going to read this excerpt from uh, William Shakespeare's Star Wars about that uh, Kylo Ren taking his father Han Solo's life on the bridge from The Force Awakens. Um, and bear with me because it gets, it gets very gospel Hans says this, "Uh, Snoke is not wise, the word is devious. He doth but use thee for thy mighty power. Once he obtains what he seeks, thereupon shall he destroy thee. Verily thou knowest, and Kylo says back to his dad, how these words sting and how my soul doth yearn to feel once more the favor of my father. I must be strong, remembering the truth to which I have been led by leader Snoke. And not the vain false comfort offered by the one whom I did once a father call. Oh, let my actions here be firm and sure, rejecting what he proffer unto me and thus embracing darkness. And he says to his dad, tis too late. Hans says, nay, never. Come, return unto thy house. We miss thy gentle presence in our lives. Tis not too late. Tis never too late, my son. Kylo says, I do confess that I am torn asunder from all this pain I fain would be set free. I know what I must do, yet fear I've not the strength to make it so. O wilt thou help? And Kylo Ren reaches to hand Han, his lightsaber. And Han says, of course, whate'er thou wishest, my sweet boy, thou bringest an e'er did bring me such great joy. And Kylo says aside, beyond the chamber dies the light outside, And toward the light within my very soul. Thus in my core doth darkness reign at last. And Kylo Ren turns his lightsaber on and runs it through his father. Listen to what his father says. And in the movie he has his hand on the face. Remember? My son whose face is still dear to me. Oh, how I see thy mother still in thee. Dear Leah, who did love this scoundrel so. I've failed thee could not save our boy from woe. Whew. So I'm reading this Shakespeare, um, Star Wars Shakespeare book to have some downtime and I'm having this moment, <laughs> right? Um, my son whose face is still dear to me. Um, you can't out the love of your heavenly father. That's just high-octane gospel, folks. Uh, One more illustration, and then uh, we'll do a QA for a couple minutes, okay? You all seen that movie Wonder? It's when it came out last year. If you haven't seen Wonder, I highly recommend it. It's another gospel-saturated film. So Jacob Tremblay plays Augie Pullman, who's a little boy who's born with Treacher-Collins syndrome, which is when your facial bones aren't formed properly. And the rest of you is fine. And so he's born, and his face is all disfigured, and so he has multiple reconstruction surgeries, but still looks very disfigured. And so for most of the time in public, he wears his astronaut's helmet, not because he dreams of going to the stars, which he does, but because he's sick of the ridicule that his face always draws. Uh, But he perseveres. He goes to school for the first time after being homeschooled and middle school, which, as I said earlier, is the worst. So his first year of middle school, and he perseveres through the whole film, through all this stuff from the other middle school kids. And at the end, his dad's getting... uh, getting Augie ready for the end of the school year assembly. He's tying his tie. And his dad, who's played by Owen Wilson, who uh, is incredible in this role, he says this, you come a long way, huh? And Auggie says, yeah. I'm proud of you for sticking it out, son. You didn't think I would, did you? And Nate lies, of course I did. But after seeing Auggie's doubt, he says, okay, well, come on. When he started, you were still wearing the astronaut helmet all the time. I love that helmet, Augie says. I wish I knew where it was. And Nate says, it's in my office. And Augie is upset. What? Augie, his dad says, please don't be mad. You got to understand, you were wearing it all the time. I never got to see you anymore. I missed your face. I know you don't always like it, but I love it. It's my son's face. I want to see it. Do you forgive me? And Augie says, no. Yes. Does mom know? Oh, God, no. Nate says, she'd kill me. But maybe I can find your helmet if you want it back. And Augie says, that's okay. And then they hug. It's this incredible moment of grace. And that's what it looks like from we're having my Father. And I'm watching this movie, again, thinking I'm just going to red box a movie and chill tonight, Sunday night. I'm fried on Sunday nights as a minister. I'm worthless on Sunday nights. And I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, man, can I just watch one movie? It's going to make me laugh? I'm just crying all the time. But that's, that's what it looks like. So I'm going to go to the cross, and then we're going to wrap up. So there's this, there's this idea in theology that on the cross that God's, or that Jesus' Heavenly Father turned his back because he couldn't look on sin. And so they look to the cry of dereliction where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, as you know, he was quoting Psalm 22. But his father didn't forsake him. Are you kidding me? He didn't cry, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Because his father didn't. He was quoting Psalm 22. And that's why when Jesus died, in Luke's account, his last words... Or Father, who is very present. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And that same Heavenly Father that never turned his back on Christ, never turned his back on you, never will. So when these little emotional pieces of shrapnel come up in your life, out of left field, which they always do, you can just remember that lens of grace that this is how it is with this person in in this earthly life but it's so different with my heavenly father. It's so different. Thank you, God. And with your kids, if you have kids, you can just take that and give them that grace. Springsteen was right. When it comes to our father issues, nothing we can say is going to change anything now, but we don't have the last word. Your heavenly father has the last word. And his last word is a word of grace. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased.